Welcome to episode 93 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined uh, today by, well, actually not quite today, uh, by our guest commentator. Um, actually, I interviewed Rod Beckstrom out at the uh, Black Hat Executive um, uh, Conference in Scottsdale uh, uh, late last week, um, uh, where both of us were giving speeches. Um, but uh, Rod's a, a great interview. Uh, um, he uh, served with me at DHS and started the U.S. National Cybersecurity Center. Uh, he had written *The Starfish and the Spider*, which was a bestseller on leaderless organizations. Uh, uh, he went on, speaking of leaderless organizations, to uh, be president and CEO of ICANN uh, and is now uh, returning to his roots as an investor and board member. And he talks about all of that in a nice uh, interview that uh, is coming up after our news roundup. Uh, but for the roundup, we've hey, got... Stuart. Yes. Hey, what, what kind of black hats hang out in Scottsdale, Arizona on a golf course? It wasn't a golf course, actually. It was backed up to uh, Camelback Mountain, and I got up uh, the, over Camelback Mountain, not over the top, but over the uh, uh, the flank. Uh, uh, but you are calling me out quite properly. To, uh, this is the <laughs> most business-oriented of the Black Hats. Uh, it was uh, specifically for CISOs and uh, uh, the like, uh, and... Uh, you know, I, I used my um, electronics without uh, any incident. Uh, but uh, there were some interesting people there, uh, including a few people who had hacker roots. Uh, uh, but it was it was much more corporate than uh, uh, you'd usually expect. Uh, yeah. But uh, it, nonetheless, uh, um, it was fun. Uh, they also uh, had uh, a... Talk by Mike Doherty, your favorite uh, FTC litigant, uh, and uh, uh, I did a short interview with him about his experiences with the FTC. And I've challenged the FTC to make somebody available to uh, for equal time. Uh, and if they do, we'll put both of those interviews out uh, uh, as a bonus next week. Uh, and if they don't. We'll just put Darties out uh, as a bonus next week. So uh, uh, look for that if you're a subscriber uh, uh, showing up uh, sometime next week when we get uh, uh, everything done. Uh, okay, that was Michael Vadis, uh, uh, who will never let me get through a show without being tweaked at least once. Uh, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office. Uh, also here are Jason Weinstein, formerly with Justice, uh, where he oversaw criminal crime prosecute uh, computer crime uh, prosecutions among other things and now does criminal and civil work uh, out of our uh, Washington office uh, welcome Jason welcome. thank you uh, and Alan Cohn uh, formerly head of strategy for DHS second in charge of DHS policy now of counsel to steptoe and delighted that he did not uh, uh, have to testify about uh, immigration uh, statistics. The, the poor woman from the policy office, you must know her, I don't, uh, who uh, just got trashed for not having the statistics when she showed up to testify. That a, was grim. A good colleague and a friend who just forgot to 
give the I don't have those numbers, but I we the department will get you that. That information. was that was what was missing. That's right. If, if, if it was like she was sort of confessing to not having her homework, and the answer always is we will have those for you, uh, absolutely. Uh, and then whenever they they say, well, do you know this? He says, we'll have those for you too. Uh, and it's much more dynamic. Uh, well, you live and learn. Uh, DHS witnesses don't often get the privilege of testifying before the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee, so it might right. have been a bit of a different environment uh, than people are used to. Well, if you haven't seen the uh, the, the YouTube clip, it's uh, it, it 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 makes you cringe to, uh, if you've ever testified in front of Congress because it could have happened to any of us. Uh, okay, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and a frequent uh, uh, testifier before Congress, uh, uh, often inducing cringes, at least in the back benches, uh, as I uh, uh, spoke my mind. Uh, let's get started. Um, a, there's a lot of talk. There's talk about legislation. There's a talk about uh, um, pressure on social media uh, to do a better job of handling ISIS and other terrorist communications, terrorist activity. Diane Feinstein uh, is talking about a bill that would require reporting uh, uh, terrorist uh, activity uh, on the web. Uh, um, and, of course, there's a lot of pressure. Again, this is DHS, isn't it? Uh, uh, indications that DHS did not catch some of the uh, Facebook and other social media activity of uh, uh, the woman who uh, uh, committed the killings in San Bernardino uh, when she was applying for uh, a visa, a fiancé visa. Well, and this goes to something I've heard you say in public, what's the only organization uh, in the country that can't maintain a, a public clips file on anyone? That's the FBI. Right. right? What organization can't go looking through people's social media accounts for things they might post, the DHS. So, um, so it goes to that question of what are we comfortable with, uh, with government uh, or the companies doing? But, but um, you know, first kind of you see the, the resurrection in the Senate of the, the reporting, the requiring reporting of Online Terrorist Activity Act. I guess it's called that because no one could come up with an acronym that resulted in the Twitter Act. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Um, so that was introduced earlier this year, and uh, Senator Ron Wyden had placed a hold on it. That's right. Um, citing that it would force the creation of the Facebook Bureau of Investigation, uh, which I think already exists anyway. But, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's all right. So, matter, yes. so this would require anyone providing an electronic communication service or a remote commuti- commu- computing service to the public through a facility uh, or means of interstate or foreign commerce, so that's Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, mm-hmm. who obtains actual knowledge of any terrorist activity, report the facts and circumstances to the appropriate authorities as determined by the Attorney General. Um, and what it really focuses on is information on distribution, um, uh, creation, use of explosives, destructive devices, uh, and weapons of mass destruction. This is kind of the how do you build a bomb. Oh, okay. As opposed to beheading videos or enthusiastic uh, uh, pledges of allegiance to ISIS? In this particular piece of legislation, it is focused on 18 U.S.C. 842, uh, the explosives uh, provision. Vision and um, and uh, the communicating, particularly the provision on communicating of information uh, about uh, creation and use of explosives. Um, 
So the, the tension is that it doesn't require the company to monitor any user just to report content that they happen to find. Right. But it's unclear what obligation that places on the company is to actually affirmatively monitor the content. It's kind of hard to believe they aren't going to be obliged to monitor the content in some fashion. Well, and especially because uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, they all affirmatively scan for child porn. Right. Now Gmail apparently scans your emails for child porn. So, you know, it, it goes to, the again, the... the the, the the statement I, I quoted you earlier is, you know, we don't really feel comfortable having law enforcement monitoring social media, um, but we don't really feel comfortable having law enforcement not monitor Exactly. I think we're going to have to get comfortable is my bet. Uh, that, that's perfectly said. But it's also the case that all the companies you mentioned who do actively monitor for child porn are not legally required to do so. You know, they are legally required to, uh, much like this bill would do, report to, although not directly to law enforcement, report to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, child pornography images they happen to come across, and then that organization in turn is obligated to report to law enforcement. But they're not required to affirmatively monitor, but they all have taken it upon themselves to do so. I think there it's more of a technical matter than anything. They have a hash value for each of the images, and they're able to scan electronically for that hash value and, and through some objective uh, algorithm figure out if, if it's an image of child porn or not. This requires a little more judgment and subjectivity, but it doesn't mean that they can't do it. They also basically have a strict liability regime. You know, if, if they are transmitting those images, it's going to come back to them. Right. Whereas in this instance, it's still unclear both from a legal perspective and even from a from a public perception uh, perspective how much this is really actually going to sit with them, with the yeah. companies. So, um, but I do think. You know, the, the discovery that this woman had put a lot of material on, uh, 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 relating to ISIS and terrorism up on, uh, uh, social media and that we missed it as a, um, uh, a visa granting authority is really going to be a, uh, problematic is my bet. Uh, and certainly for DHS, it's, it's going to be pretty painful. I think that's right, but I think it's, it has to prompt the question of are we comfortable with organizations like DHS going ahead and looking at social media because these types of things are there and accepting that in doing so they're going to see a lot of other things that we may prefer that the government not see, um, but that's just kind of the price of, of being able to view these types of, of things in a, in a timely way that can that can potentially prevent at least some part of something like this from happening. Well, it will be interesting. Uh, my guess is that uh, DHS probably could have gotten access to more, and they were debating whether to do it. Uh, they can certainly look at all the public stuff, and with a subpoena probably could look at, uh, uh, or at least a warrant could look at the uh, uh, the remaining materials, uh, question whether uh, you could use a warrant just to decide whether to grant a visa. My guess is yes. All right. Um, the EU um, is making the slowest imaginable progress on actually uh, adopting a cybersecurity uh, uh, rule for Europe. Uh, uh, they haven't done it yet, and when they do it, it'll have extensive two, two-and-a-half-year extensions and opportunities for different governments to change their rules. But basically, it looks as though um, there's agreement that there's going to be a, uh, a review of uh, cybersecurity, some standards for cybersecurity, uh, and some 
breach notice, uh, even in circumstances where the breach doesn't touch on private data. Yes, and it's it's interesting. It was the the characterization of the European Parliament and Council reaching a political consensus <laughs> as to the content, not an agreement on the on right. the document, but a political consensus about the content. And this it really focused on who is going to be covered right. uh, by this. Right. Um, it had always been uh, been uh, considered that owners and operators of critical infrastructure, banks, and healthcare providers would be covered uh, by this. The debate was over whether the digital service providers, the Google e-commerce and Twitter platforms, and right, right. the like, yes. Yeah. Um, and not only Google and Twitter, but um, e-commerce platforms like Amazon That's and right. eBay, uh, whether they should be covered as well. And the, the political consensus is that, yes, they will be covered, but there will be different regimes for the... Um, <clears throat> For the the digital service providers versus the critical infrastructure owners and operators, and yes, as you were saying, once the 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 this national network and information security or NIS directive is agreed on, then uh, member states will have a, have 21 months to adopt the directive into their national laws, with a six month period to then adjust it for their national laws, and 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 uh, yeah, it's an inevitable set of compromises. Right. So, in a one hand, um, that's good. You know, the, it kind of continues to push off the the ball. And the, uh, on the other hand, though, um, it creates a lot of uncertainty over the next 21, 27, 34 yes. months, because each of the member states, you know, the directive is really just a baseline, and each of the direct the member states can interpret what digital service provider means, its breadth, its reach, um, what the specific provisions on cybersecurity, uh, on breach notification specifically, who, when, what, to who. Um, each member state gets the, the ability to determine that over this 21, 27-month period. I think this is also going to have an impact in the U.S. It will have impact U.S. companies, but there will also be an impact in the U.S. Um, over Breaches that don't involve private data, but which involve companies that are engaged in critical infrastructure. Uh, I think we're going to see a very broad breach notification for uh, uh, companies that have that kind of responsibility. Yes, and that would be a welcome development, I think, of the 47 states and, and, and entities in the United States that have adopted breach notification provisions. Most of them focus on personally identifiable information, financial information. Um, yes, I think this will prompt and should prompt uh, rules that look more like um, what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission yes. just did. Or DOD. Right. Yes. Uh, exactly. All right. Well, so um, Michael Darty uh, um, is, it turns out, the last man standing because Wyndham, which was also fighting the FTC's standards for security, has given up the ghost. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, what does this mean? Yeah, you know, I guess Wyndham felt like it didn't really have uh, much hope for getting anywhere once it lost in the Third Circuit, uh, lost its challenge to the to the FTC's basic authority to regulate uh, data security. Uh, and so now it's, as you say, it's basically thrown in the towel and has agreed to the typical FTC settlement that it's imposed on 50-plus companies, which is uh, essentially 20 years of oversight by the commission. Unbelievable. Uh, the, you know, the company not only has to put in place a, a, a comprehensive information security program, but it also has to obtain uh, an, a, an annual assessment of its security 
and the FTC has carte blanche to obtain discovery without further leave of court into whatever it wants regarding Wyndham's security practices. So I guess the only silver lining there is that this is a government agency with, you know, lots of work to do, and so maybe it won't ask for information as often as it might otherwise. But this is, you know, these settlements, even with no financial penalty, can be pretty burdensome. And this is exactly where they would have ended up had they admitted responsibility oh, yes. on day two of the investigation. Yeah, no, well, that's the problem with all of this. Well, I don't know that they would have ended up with 20 years. Uh, or it may have been semi-annual instead of annual. Right. You know, it would have been a little <laughs> bit less over. Yeah, the, the 20 years is, is pretty standard. Uh, I, I think sometimes they are every two years you got to submit a report. Um, but but the, the gist of it is, is pretty consistent. So uh, maybe maybe in in fut- some future Republican FTC uh, uh, the uh, the commission will just say you know we don't need any of these uh, uh, decrees after the first four or five years uh, and they'll uh, they'll dump them all which they certainly could do. Uh, has anyone heard whether the Weinstein brothers have optioned uh, the script for 20 years of oversight? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Quentin Tarantino is going to write the script. <laughs> All right. Well, the last topic I wanted to cover uh, is uh, what I've decided is the Donald Trump of tech issues, which is encryption. It, it, people keep uh, predicting that it will go away, and it just doesn't. Uh, um, a, a, a Senator McCall, or uh, Representative McCall, uh, Chairman of uh, House uh, uh, Homeland Security, has introduced a bill to try to get uh, everybody to sit down together and talk about the issue, a commission that would report back quickly on whether there are solutions. The White House met with privacy advocates um, about uh, uh, its encryption policy, and not surprisingly, they, they trashed it for not um, swearing on a stack of Bibles that it will never, never, never think about encryption regulation. But I thought the most interesting thing was the FBI uh, 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 coming out and saying, you know, actually, those guys... The, uh, the, le- the less successful ISIS self-starting attackers, uh, the guys who showed up at a, uh, a uh, Texas, Garland, Texas event, uh, with, uh, body armor and, uh, uh, automatic, semi-automatic weapons and got shot down before they hurt anybody seriously, uh, that they actually had hundreds of encrypted, uh, messages that, uh, um, uh, the FBI still hasn't been able to, uh, um, uh, Decipher. That strikes me as something that's going to be a long-term contribution to the debate that probably the tech community isn't going to isn't going to love. Well, that that's true. If I recall correctly, it was 109 messages, and I think they were all or most of them were on the day of the attack. Oh, uh, so it's it's you know it's something that the FBI will never be able to say what was in those messages or whether knowing about those messages would have enabled them to prevent the attack, but it's going to hang uh, over the debate like a... Well, like channeling a the ACLU, so so there's really no evidence that encryption played any role at all in this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's what EFF would say, too. But it's, it's well, you're right. No, it's I, thought you were gonna, I thought you were going to say this is the Donald Trump of tech issues because everybody keeps talking about it, but there's no substance there because nobody's got a proposal on the table. Industry says, well, we're waiting for the government to put its proposal out there so we can comment. The government says, we're not going to put a proposal out there. We just want industry to come up with a solution to this. And so we just keep going around in this cycle where nobody's putting anything substantive on the table. I, I agree with you. Um, Comey's uh, speech where he mentioned this 109 uh, messages that they can't 
decrypt is is the most significant thing in a while that's been said about this issue because the FBI's principal shortcoming for years has been the inability or the unwillingness to put out any concrete information about how encryption has thwarted investigations. This is the first really important evidence, so to speak, that it's put out there. And we'll see what effect it has, if any. Yeah. Okay. So two quick items that I just couldn't resist. For about a day and a half, we knew who Satoshi Nakamoto was. And it was a guy named Craig Wright in Australia. And now it turns out that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that evidence was faked. Is that right? Yeah. So I think it's probably time for Alan and I to admit that collectively we are Satoshi Nakamoto. Well, good. Uh, maybe you can pay for lunch. <laughs> All right. And the other thing, the, the thing I loved is a uh, woman involved in a hit-and-run uh, uh, accident uh, uh, and is turned in by her car. Uh, which dials 911 because uh, uh, the uh, airbags deployed, uh, and she's getting calls saying, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, your airbags deployed. Did you have a hit and run? And she says, oh, no, I would always report <laughs> that. Uh, and, of course, she ends up uh, busted f- uh, because her car turned her in. This is uh, uh, one of the less attractive aspects of the Google self-driving cars. Right. That okay. It may just lock all the doors and take you to the police station. <laughs> All right. Um, that's it for our news roundup. Uh, we'll now turn to uh, the interview I did earlier with uh, Rod Beckstrom. I'm here with Rod Beckstrom, uh, whom I've known for 20-some years, uh, um, and he's had a career that is even uh, has even less of a theme probably than mine. I, uh, you've done, uh, one of the things I really admire about you is your willingness to t- take on completely new tasks, uh, and to uh, excel at them. Uh, uh, you, uh, were an investor, started companies. We worked together on a company called Pravada in the 90s. Uh, uh, you went to DHS after I did and started really the, fir- with, you were probably the first full-time um, it, well, you had the major new cybersecurity initiative that the uh, uh, department uh, undertook. Uh, you did that uh, for a year or so. You left. Uh, you went on to uh, run ICANN for two terms, I think. Uh, uh, put them on a solid financial footing. I uh, uh, have left and done cybersecurity for big companies, and now you're doing a bunch of startups. So, yeah. Did I get it right? Yeah, that's, that's about right. And first, you know, a quick thank you to you, Stuart, for being such a great coach and mentor to me when I was in DHS, when you were Assistant Secretary of Policy. And I, I would come into you with the, the questions of anybody new to government uh, coming in out of California and Silicon Valley. And uh, you always had a great smile and, and sage advice on, on how to work and get things done in, in DHS and D.C. So I greatly appreciate that. Well, it was, you know, you and I were the only people who understood Silicon Valley from the inside, uh, from our past uh, background. And Usually that means you're incapable of functioning in government, but you did a, you did a great job. Uh, uh, and, and, and what you were doing was building a, an information sharing center, essentially. Uh, and uh, so th- right now we're in the middle of debating whether that 
sort of information sharing is going to be legislatively encouraged. Uh, do you have any observations on uh, the uh, the debate over whether DHS ought to get the information or NSA or FBI or any of the other issues related to the information sharing law? Yeah. As you know, I'm never short of opinion. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, <laughs> that makes two of us. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll share a few different thoughts. The first is, you know, I mean, having had the chance to work on these information sharing topics since 2007 in, in cyber and being a student of economics and marketplaces and 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 governments nonprofits and, and the private sector um, the, the first thing we have to remember about information sharing is is, is that uh, you, you know you have to know there's really a market failure mm-hmm. and what that market failure is before you fix it and what I want to say is a lot of information sharing actually is happening but there is friction to information sharing that's actually not about technology. It's not even, and it's, it's a bit about humans, and it's a lot about law. Yeah. You know, that every time you get uh, uh, different legal reviews required in an information sharing environment, you go from the speed of light to the speed of law, as I think you right. said yesterday. Yes. Okay? So, and we keep making that same mistake, which is why, you know, when we had a, a nice um, event that PwC sponsored with the White House uh, in, in San Francisco on information sharing and these the new ISAs. And the point I made was, number one, if the government really wants more information sharing to happen between private sector members of ISACs, ISAs, et cetera, then the government should not be in the middle of that exchange. It should not be an approving body. I think that's right. It should be a voluntary participant when the other participants are, are... Accept that. Yes. Okay? Because the problem is if you go to the government, they've got to go through a whole review cycle, and, and that review cycle is, is just going to choke data sharing. And, and it's done in a hundred times. So the, the first thing is the, the most valuable data sharing in the world happens peer-to-peer or trusted right. party to trusted party or trusted organization to trusted organization or trusted network to trusted network. So every time you try to do the, 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 the you know, be-all, end-all platform, and, and I learned this at the National Cybersecurity Center. So I had the, Yes, the, you were trying to run something. Exactly. So, and, and here, actually, here's an untold story that I, I can share a little bit of now, which is there was partly the technical work we were, gonna go, we were, mm-hmm. we were working on and going to do, and I'm not going to go into any details there because a lot of that's classified. Um, but what I can say is we got the real information sharing going by building relationships. So there's two things that we, because I looked at the problem and I said, the institutional work is going to take a lot of time. It needs to happen and yep. go step by step. And part of what we worked on is now part of the NKIC. Yes. The National Cyber Center got folded into that. What we got going was, number one, a meeting of the seven center directors every month mm-hmm. rotating around the centers. And then all of a sudden, when the director from the FBI is meeting with the director from DHS and DOD, et cetera, they realized we had the same problems. Hiring yes. people. Right. And, training. And, and, and so it... it, it Instead of mistrusting the other exactly. guys, you started to realize you had a lot that you would, wanted to work with them on. Precisely. So we got, tr- we got trusted relationships built with only those seven. The first meeting I had, a ton of people showed up, which was ridiculous. Because <laughs> well, it was supposed right. to be plus ones. Right. But they thought you were about to screw them. Everybody yeah, exactly. thought you were about right. to screw them. And then the next meeting was only center directors. Right. And no one else. And, and, and we built really excellent relationships. From those relationships, then, then you had collaboration going on. And people working through appropriate channels. And the next thing that happened was a move to a daily call. Right. between the centers from the, from the operating parties, and that is collaboration right there. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 and those things lived, have lived on. Yes, they have, and that's what, kind of what I, wanted to, what I wanted to ask you, is how do you perceive the progress that DHS has made in particular in this area, yeah. since you were there and I was there? First, you know, I think that, that, that uh, U.S. CERT and the NCIC have become 
Uh, overall, very well-functioning bodies. Certainly a lot better than they were, much stronger. They have a vital role in the cyber ecosystem, mm -hmm. period. And, and I remember when I would speak to congressional staffers and congressmen and, and senators when I was there, I made the point, you have got to invest more in DHS. Even though you may not feel they're up to par yet, you've got to make an investment to build that capability. And, it's and they did, and on, on yeah. the whole, DHS has done that. Yeah, right? I think DHS is doing a lot better, But I, and if I were speaking to congressmen and senators today, I would say you need to put more in DHS and more into FBI as well. I think FBI has a, a very crucial role to play as the, as the domestic uh, federal law enforcement entity, uh, and, and I think FBI has made great improvement since we were there because of the investment, but I think they need to have even more capability to help fight cyber Okay, so, so let me ask about ICANN. Uh, um, how much of a contribution is ICANN making to security today, and what more should they be doing? Yeah, I, I think there's more that the global uh, Internet community can be doing. So ICANN has made a number of steps. When I was there, and my goal was really build the capacity of the organization. So, you know, it was it always been a good multi-stakeholder body for setting up the policies for domain names and addresses. Hadn't always been good at execution. Sometimes people called it a perpetual debate society. Well, I, I think I called it uh, uh, the uh, bureaucratic equivalent of a deadhead tour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, there, and there's, there's probably a lot of truth in that. But so, you know, we geared up the organization. You know, there, a lot of people worked hard to build it, uh, the organization where it was, but I brought in a lot of professional managers. Mm -hmm. Ten out of my 12 reports when I left were ones I brought in. Almost all of those are still there today. Oh, yeah, over three years later. So the organization, and, and it just we just lifted the organization, the process, everything from the technology, the finance systems, the planning system. But also, I told the board of ICANN before they elected me, I'm going to have one word I'm going to use often you're not going to like, but it's essential to making this organization effective. It's a two-letter word. It's called no. <laughs> no, we can't reconsider this. No, we can't also do that. We actually need to start executing because the gap, it's just like the congressional problem in the U.S. I mean, half of legislation never really gets implemented. Right. But when you have a, a, a multi-stakeholder policy-making board of 20 people, a lot of them think their progress is creating more paper and more policies and regulations. But if you can't implement, and ICANN is an interesting case because it, it's a policy-making organization and then it's doing the enforcement as well or, or, or running the operations of coordination of the domain name system. Um, but uh, uh, to get the execution caught up with all the policy work that had been done, um, you know, I had, to, I had to, to say no to a lot of things that might have been nice or fun to do, but that was impossible to do with the resources. So that's how we got new GTLDs launched. That's how we got mm -hmm. internationalized domain names and, and DNSSEC in, so, right. which is a, 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 a nice platform piece in the Internet. I mean, my, my saying overall is the Internet's not, it, it, you know, no one is safe until everyone is safe right. on the Internet. So we've got to tighten up the infrastructure and the architecture. And a lot more work is necessary. ICANN is a very important community for inf for sharing and collaboration voluntarily amongst the parties. The one place I'd look at security there today and, and say I think more work needs to be done, and I hope the community does it, uh, is, is the root server system, which is a, a critical part of the backbone of the internet. Because if, if you take if you can take those out. Uh the ability to communicate starts to decay and over 24 or 48 hours really starts to become seriously impaired. Yeah. Well, we don't even know exactly what would happen because, because right. the, all the routes had not been down. There was, you know, another attack recently reported uh, in early December. Very unfortunate. Took at least three of the root servers down. Um, 
But work needs to be done, in my view, to review the architecture of the root server system to consider whether having 13 is adequate mm -hmm. to have the performance because the, the, the so-called copies or any cast instances of the root server uh, were not, even with those, were not sufficient with those attacked to, to withhold uh, with the exception of, of one group that did a, did a very good job and, and stood up to it. But more work needs to be done because it is the a single point of failure in the global internet. And so it, it needs to be further strengthened. And DNSSEC, uh, you know, we've, lots of people, including the U.S. government, have said, okay, we're, we're, we're signing on, but it's still at one, two, three percent, uh, adoption. Uh, uh, do you think that, um, there's a way to, to move beyond that to actually get DNSSEC widely deployed? Or, uh, is it, uh, is it something we should reconsider? Yeah, it's a, it's a really tough one because, you know, every time we come up with a security solution, every security solution introduces new vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And in the case of DNSSEC, sec, there's a secondary impact that none of us thought about. At, you know, years of crafting this good, secure, you know, encrypted uh, uh, encryption around the domain name system to avoid man-in-the-middle attacks. But what happened is the hackers figured out they could use... DNS reflection and amplification. Right. Attacks. So instead of saying, "Can you do a a, a, a three packet answer to me?" Yeah. Uh, it was, "Can you do a whole bunch of computation and then send me a complex exactly. answer?" Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so, unfortunately, that has been used by the DDoS attackers and and made the attacks on DNS servers worse than they were before. I'm just amazed that DDoS continues to be as big a problem as it is. Uh, it uh, because. Uh, you know, you know where the attack is coming from. You can see the attackers, and yet we seem unable to uh, uh, find a way to, to persuade or stop the attacks from. Well, there's a couple things going on this story. I think it's worth mentioning. One is that you know, if you look five years ago, the DDoS attacks were coming from you know, from bots, from machines right. that were zombies taken over by the hackers. Now they're being taken over by cl cloud instances and accounts, millions mm. of accounts created in the cloud. So the game, in, in ways, has become even faster. Right. And then part of the dilemma is the hackers are smart enough to have set up accounts that look like Stuart yeah. or Rod or whoever, so that the, the online businesses don't want to have false positives and turn turn down real clients. Right. Uh, so they're 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 afraid to to lock these guys out, and uh, uh, cloud providers like Amazon are reluctant to. Tell good customers we're not delivering your your uh, packets. Uh, I see. Well, and, tel I, and telcos as well. So if you look right. at the telcos, they're sitting in the middle. The carriers have tremendous data, yeah. and they could shut a lot of this down. But they'd also shut some of the wrong people down, and right. and, and and the wrong messages, and, and make people unhappy. Particularly, as there are still machines that are taken well, over. Well, if they were, if 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 if, if Congress in the business of giving out immunities, they should think seriously about giving out immunities for people who take good faith action to stop. Yeah. Uh, DDoS attacks. Yeah. I want to I, I close. And by the way, it is a technical fascination of mine, so I mean, I'm working on oh, okay. that problem in one of my... Well, so yeah, one, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you to uh, kind of come bring this to an end is about some of your current activities, because I know you're involved with three or four new companies, uh, and uh, um, to the extent they deal with security, uh, it would be great to hear about them. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I are probably some in the sense that, you know, we get our hands on a fascinating or interesting problem that's not fully solved or keeps evolving. You get fascinated yes. and you want to keep playing with it. And that's what cybersecurity has been like for me ever since I've gotten engaged 
And right now, in particular, I'm very interested in the application of, of uh, big data, mm -hmm. cloud computing, and machine learning, and, and what's now called deep learning uh, as tools to solve different security problems. So one of the companies I'm involved with is called PredPol for predictive policing. Um, and what they do is pull in all the crime data history out of any city, strip out all the private information, right. strip out all the PII, and then they can predict where crimes are going to occur and tell police forces where they can optimally deploy their... So this is what, I mean, CopStat, which is the uh, the New York City system for uh, uh, holding uh, precincts accountable, uh, is sort of that, but mm -hmm. it, it never took advantage of uh, big data or uh, information processing tools. And so it, it, it sounds to me as though what you're saying is this is the next step for CopStat. Yeah, it is. You know, we've got cities like Los Angeles using this very successfully, mm -hmm. Atlanta and 30 or 40 other cities around the world. Now, I think most cities should be using some type of predictive policing. There's a number of companies out there. PredPol is probably the leader in the space with 30 or 40 cities. And So anyway, so I've, I've enjoyed that one, and it appeals to me because it respects people's privacy, but it's making governments more effective. Right, so your theory, the theory is knowing that a crime occurred in a place uh, without knowing who committed it is actually, if you, what you're trying to do is put your... Uh, patrol resources out there. You don't really need to know. You've probably got the guy still in jail that committed the last one, but there was something about that situation, that time, yeah. uh, that led to the crime, and there's a good chance that if somebody else had been there, they would have committed the crime too. Yeah. And so this is the idea is put a cop there instead, and it'll deter the, the action. It's, a number of studies have shown reductions of up to 20 and 30 percent using existing police re resources just Having this real-time data, on and you can tell the difference. Down. I mean, if if somebody has a uh, a big rock concert uh, once a month, that that repeating pattern will uh, show up in your in Predpol's uh, system. You know, it's actually a good question with, with with respect to concerts and those events. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does right. because it's it's capturing all the data that's in the police reports that's that's related to those systems and what's in calendars and can be pulled out. Right. So it, it's it's quite fascinating. So Predpol's one company. Another company's called Zap Fraud mm -hmm. that is using uh, big data and artificial intelligence to build better spam blockers and and anti spear phishing and anti phishing, which is becoming a Increasing problem, you know, where targeted emails are misleading yep. people to click on links and 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 invite hackers into their system unknowingly. Um, and 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 the historic approaches to doing that have been mostly like keyword matches, you know, wire transfer, Nigeria, you know, King, yeah, whatever, yeah. twenty male reproductive organs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's so so they've been kind of keyword oriented, and and the you know and the hackers and the thieves, cyber criminals have been. Keep evolving their language, using a different word, new yeah. spellings, etc. And, and somehow it still works for some part of the population. So uh, what what Zapfrod's doing is is using semantics as well as those other things. And the goal is to to stop ninety percent of what's I, I, you know. It, I, I, one of the things that I've been struck by is that uh, most people discard those uh, uh, emails immediately because you can see that you know it's highly unlikely somebody wants to give you a million dollars. Say. But the, they don't really care that you discard, uh, that 98% of the people discard it. What they're interested in is the 2% that are, uh, naive enough to fall for that. And then they could, once they've self-selected, uh, they can put more human resources oh, into uh, extracting funds from those guys. And if your system can spot like the second and the third come-ons, 
so that you're actually warning people about fraud after they've fallen for the first. That's enormously important. Well, it's true. They're preying on the elderly often. Oh, of course. People starting to experience dementia. Yeah. You know, and and we went through this this experience in our neighborhood, and we were trying to help a neighbor who got enticed through a male program, and the phone calls were coming in, and it was oh, just yeah, they, crazy. Oh, and, yeah, and they call them, and then they yeah. talk them through it, and they persuade them, that, and that maybe the first phone call they've had in three days, uh, and and they know they're being taken after a while, but they, they don't want to believe it, and then they get this call, it sounds plausible, yeah. it's so sad, it's really, and, you know, I, I, I did a story on a guy uh, who went through that and called his family afterwards, and they, 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 he ended up dying uh, uh, in the middle of this, uh, and they said, yeah, he did know, and he was just so ashamed and so embarrassed that he'd yeah. done that to his resources yeah. and his family's yeah. resources, his wife uh, is now totally impoverished it's just a shocking abuse yeah. uh, and because it doesn't affect the 98% of us who are right. not fools I, I, it gets less attention people tend to think well you know nobody will really fall right. and, then, and these guys are the experts because they'll try to draw the numbers right below the lines right so instead of 10000 they're asking you for $9,500 or something right. you know, because it's below an so, so uh, here's my next request for Zapfront yeah. can you do AI Turing test uh, passing responses so that instead of the poor guy who got it, they, yeah. they, you, you shut him off to the computer and, and, and you say, exactly, say, say, oh, I, we, we got to do it, you know, because there, there are some very funny stories about um, uh, fraudsters who've yes. been sent on, yes. you know, thousand mile journeys. <laughs> <laughs> I would love that. If you can automate that process, yeah. we, we will owe you a great that's jet. That's a great idea. And then, the, and then one, one of the other companies is that's in stealth mode is focused on it. We're building the first security appliance that does artificial intelligence analysis on 100% of the traffic that comes out of conventional security appliances, and it, uh, such as firewalls and IDS and IPS, and it's targeted at detecting automated malicious attacks. So where the hackers have really moved now, instead of just smart guys and gals with keyboards launching scripts and Right, code, they get in, they, they dump yeah. their, their stuff, and then it's, it, yeah. it processes, it, it more or less does everything automatically, and the next thing you know, it's exfiltrated. And they buy tools, totally automated tools, where they can literally point an attack at a million different machines wow. to see if it's vulnerable. And so these are what we call malicious automated attacks. It's a huge new wave. You've seen it at, uh, happen at... at uh, you know whether it's Anthem, or, right? Or, you know, in healthcare and finance, this is, in the this, government. Is, this is great. So you're basically looking at the patterns of behavior inside the network uh, after yes. everything has been vetted and a few people, a few things have gotten through. Yes. You're trying to spot that, and instead of having poor people trying to read the logs to spot it, right? Oh, this is great. It's that's automating, a, a, and it's also because part of what the, the hackers and the automated scripts go after, it's business process. Yeah. So in other words, they're using your legitimate processes. Yep. They're just they just stole the account name and the passwords and other things. And mm-hmm. so it's very difficult to attack and, and it's not a virus and it's it's not per se a, a, a signature, it's a set of behaviors and it's being watched from phony sites. So and part can, of what we and, call and, ourselves yep. in ways the product is like a polygraph engine. Yeah. It detects. It detects I, 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 that, that's great. And and you know, uh, in my in my vision of this, um, there would be automated interventions that say to people that to machines that purport to be doing something for a legitimate user, uh, could you call me uh, before we finish this tra- particular transaction? You need to give me a call, uh, which is going to screw up their automated systems. Uh, uh, but 
uh, interrupting as opposed to just spotting and alerting is probably the next step. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's a that that's yeah. a lot of fun. So it's an exciting time. You know, there's just a lot of work for all of us to do in this field of leveraging best new technology to build solutions to try to make companies safer and protect people's privacy and their assets. Well, Rod, uh, Rod Beckstrom, thank you so much for doing this. Before we finish up, uh, I usually ask my guests if they've got any events or speaking engagements uh, uh, they want to uh, promote. Rod is the guy who taught me uh, how to uh, have a career as a public speaker, uh, gave me the best advice I've gotten in the field, uh, is... is uh, your example was terrific. You're a great public speaker. Uh, you should be hired frequently. Uh, but if you're thinking about hiring Rod, uh, you should know that his advice to me uh, was make sure you get paid before you speak. Uh, <laughs> but any 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 uh, uh, things that our listeners might be interested in? Yeah, you know, I'll be clearly speaking at more of the security conferences rolling out in 2016. I'm speaking at a big government event, which is fun. E-government's another area that I focus on. It will be in Dubai. There's a, a big world meeting in uh, in February. For February 8th, I'll be in Dubai, and otherwise I'll probably be at R, you know, RSA, Black Hat, uh, and uh, and some other events, corporate events that I do. But well, that's great. Yeah. We, 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 we have only scratched the surface. The talk you gave here, which was terrific, uh, uh, had to do with valuing networks yes. and uh, 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 valuing the loss of networks exactly. to, in cyber uh, events, uh, uh, which we didn't even get to talk about. So if you want to hear Rod's views on that, you're going to have to go to Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Stuart. All right. Well, thank you, Rod Beckstrom. Uh, thank you also, Michael Vadis, Jason Weinstein, Alan Cohn, uh, uh, for uh, their contributions to episode 93 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. As a reminder, we're going on hiatus uh, for Christmas. Uh, uh, there'll be two weeks where we will not be releasing a, uh, a Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, although, as I said, uh, if the FC, FTC responds to my uh, Challenge. They will give me a 15-minute interview about the LabMD case. Don't hold your breath. Uh, but you will get to hear uh, from Mike Doherty, the CEO of LabMD, about uh, his experiences uh, um, in that uh, FTC case. Uh, he's the last man with a live challenge to... Uh, uh, the FTC's practices in cybersecurity. Yeah. Uh, as a reminder, if you have uh, feedback, send it to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we'd love to have reviews on iTunes uh, and elsewhere. Uh, I promise you we will uh, read the reviews and name the reviewers if you uh, can get us over the critical mass hump so that we have a package of reviews on iTunes. Uh, uh, this has been episode 93 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, we'll be joined uh, when we return in 2016 by Nick, Nick Weaver from Berkeley, uh, by Senator Tom Cotton, and by John Lynch of the Justice Department uh, criminal uh, computer crime section. Uh, we hope you'll join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.